Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, Stomping Jen. Here we are. Episode what number? 95. 95. Oh Five my God. away from 100. Five away from triple digits. Crazy. And I'm really excited. We have a wonderful guest with us for this episode. Tell us who it is. Her name is Chelsea Sunday Klein. She is a Pioneer Valley activist, sometimes politician, and what else? <laughs> Lots of things. She's going to tell us all about herself. And she's going to tell us all about herself and the amazing things she's doing in the Valley. So yes. hang on. We will see you on the other side of the intro music. Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. All right, Stomping Jen. I'm just looking at your intro. What are you looking at? And you What's had all wrong this, with it? You had all these words that you didn't say. I know. I write all this stuff down and I never say it. <laughs> I think that's a, some kind of mental block that's I have. Right. Well, episode 95... As I said, we're five away from a hundred. It's crazy. What an accomplishment that I have done. Ninety-five. Yes. Congratulate me, please. Plus hours. Yes. Spent. Oh, many pluses. Some of these episodes have been three hours long. Yeah. They've been absolutely nuts. Well, on this episode, we have a really interesting guest with us. Her name is Chelsea Sunday Klein. So let's say hi to Chelsea. Hi, Chelsea. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming on. And I totally bungled your introduction. So I'm going to give myself the podcaster's slap up aside the head. Thank you, Stomping Jen. I deserve that. I deserve that. I'll give it another one. Um, so, Chelsea, thanks for coming to talk to us. And we'd like to kind of turn it over to you to tell us about yourself. What do you want people to know about you? Who are you? Hey, thanks for Thanks for having me. This is really, really fun and cool. Um, I always struggle with how to introduce myself, um, maybe because I don't fit into a single category. But I, I guess first and foremost, I am a writer. Um, I'm also a little bit of a, maybe a rabble rouser. Mm. <laughs> um, so, or, or an actor. I guess, an organizer. Um, I am a mom of three and that's a really important part of who I am because I do a lot of writing about motherhood and I do a lot of thinking about motherhood and the way that it transforms people, parenthood for sure. Um, and that has really informed the way that I, um, have a lot of compassion for human beings and the human struggle. And, um, and that's, that's 
a big part of being a mom, right? Is sort of opening up these heart channels as being a compassionate human being. So being a mom, I think is, is a, is a first and foremost, I guess, even though that's not what I started with, but I became a mom when I was a teenager. So I've been a mom for a long ass time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But you did say I was a politician. I am not a politician. Um, I did run for office and that was connected to being a rabble rouser um, and, and calling calling people out, people in positions of power, calling them out. Mm-hmm. Um, hit, so hit that, that was a long-winded button. intro. Sorry. Yeah, no, that was a telling, stopping Jen to hit that disapproval no, button. You get mad at me when I hit the button. No, so I deserved I it. Um, yeah, so, um, so tell us a little bit about that run in 2018 for, um, for Massachusetts State Senate. I'm really kind of curious, as somebody... Um, who isn't a politician, and I wouldn't want to be one either, right? <laughs> That's not a label I would want to like no, put on myself. I don't want to be a politician. Yeah, except I do want to run for Congress, <laughs> so maybe I do want to be a politician. Did he just say that, right? I did. Yeah, yeah. he um, said one thing, then he said that. Another. Uh, but tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in that position as somebody who wouldn't characterize themselves as a politician. I think that's really interesting. I I think that's. I think that you're hitting on something, though, Sashi, that politician or being a politician, I think, is seen as kind of negative, right? Because we think of people being maybe two-faced or kind of slippery or being really entrenched or owing favors, right? And that's how I always viewed politicians with a, with a capital P. And it never occurred to me to run for office, partially because of that, but also partially because I grew up... Um, with not so much money. I grew up moving once a year for most of my childhood. So I grew up in, in kind of a unusual way and never thought of myself as quote unquote normal. I never thought of myself as being, um, someone that could be in a leadership position. Um, and especially being a teen mom, people sort of looking down their noses at me, like I was, you know, a mess or whatever. Um, and so it never occurred to me that I could run for office but I was an activist and I was someone who was um, really passionate about looking out for people or calling out oppression or toxic situations or naming them and pushing from the outside and, and really, you know, trying to heal and fix and, and repair from the outside until um, I was seeing what was happening with the senator at the time, um, Stanley Rosenberg, who had done awesome things um, Mm -hmm. for the district and actually was a really sweet, gentle, lovey guy, Um, which is, you know, right. Humans are full of contradictions, right? Like he, I had interacted with him and thought he was a really, really sweet, wonderful person. And at the same time, he was allowing some really really bad things to happen on his watch. Um, and I am a mom of boys and I, um, am really pained when I see, uh, young men, when I see, when I see men, when I see people being hurt or harmed or shut down or ignored. Um, and that's what was going on. And I was pissed off (laughs) (laughs) and that really inspired me to run and say, you know what? a lot of people are wanting to ignore this situation and wanting it to go away and wanting to pretend like it's not happening. Um, and can't really hold those contradictions in their mind of like Rosenberg has done amazing things for the district and Rosenberg is, you know, a a pretty great guy. And he's also behaving really inappropriately and allowing people to get hurt. Um, particularly young men. 
Um, and like, nope, not, not okay with me. And no one was willing to challenge him and no one was really willing to publicly stand up and say, enough is enough. And you should not be in a position, in a leadership position. Um, and you should not be our Senator anymore. Um, so that's why I ran. And, um, that was not, um, maybe the, 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 the mainstream view of, of what was going on. Um, and I, and I talked about it a little bit. Um, but that was really why I ran to, to make a, make a, a statement as yeah. an activist that I stand with survivors. I always believe survivors. Um, and I really believe that, um, particularly male survivors are, um, even more silenced and even more harmed. I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say even more. They're in a, in a different position than female survivors or transgender survivors. So I will, I will say that they are in a different position mm -hmm. um, and are often silenced in a different way than women are um, and transgender um, survivors are. And it felt like my, my duty as someone who is noticing to, to, to say it out loud and to challenge. Um, so that's really why I ran. And it was interesting because I really didn't think that I was going to win um, because I knew that I was making such a, you know, a bold statement. And I also thought for sure that I would be the first one to jump into the race. Um, it didn't occur to me that I would be the only one on the ballot. I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the race, but I thought for sure I would just sort of like break the seal, quote unquote, and then a bunch of other people would be like, yeah, you know what, let's all do this but yeah. i was the only the only one who was willing to, to do these you know to say those things and to jump in and and that was like sort of it earned me some cred and also was my achilles tendon at the same time so yeah. it sort of gave me this like interesting like i, I it was a it was a quite a conundrum because mm -hmm. i i would people were like impressed and shocked and also a lot of people were like no, no, no. Like this, this is not how, it, this is not how it works. <laughs> you yeah. do not call out entrenched power. <laughs> yeah. And, how did, and how, so it was, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you, how did you translate that feeling of needing to do something to action, you know, like to that moment of filing your papers and like, was that, was, was that a scary moment? for you to taking, you know, taking the, the feelings and thoughts about wanting to do something and then actually turning it into action and moving your, your, um, campaign forward? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, like a lot of women of my generation, I have debilitating, um, imposter syndrome. Oh my God, <laughs> so there yes. was a lot of like, Oh, I can't, this is not real. Like I, I can't be me. Like there was a lot of like pushing myself from behind and just like putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and trying not to think about it too hard. Um, and I had a really well-established network. Um, and I had a lot of people that really believed in me and I had already been moving in circles of people that were, um, encouraging women to run for office and helping women to run for office. But I had been one of the encouragers. <laughs> I had been one of the helpers, mm -hmm. one of the supporters. I hadn't been the one who was actually ever really considering running. So it was a little bit funny. Like I sort of tricked myself into it. I was like, no, no, you run and I'll help you. And then I was like, oh wait, I'm running. Oh my God. I didn't, I didn't like quite, I, I didn't like think about it. You know, I just did it. Um, which is kind of like childbirth, honestly. Like it was sort of one of those things where I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? Right. This really hurts. And I just have to see it through. Like, yeah. this is like so intense. <laughs> so I just like knuckled down. But yeah, it was really scary and really wild. 
Yeah, and I, I remember when stomping stomping Jen here ran for office in our town, and I remember how like shaken up you were after you filed the papers. Like, what a nerve wracking! Oh my god, yeah, experience that was yeah. for you. So. But funnily enough, uh, like you, I was pissed off about something which pushed me to run. Yeah. So <laughs> you piss <laughs> off women enough; <laughs> they can do anything. <laughs> Right, right. And And I think like studies show that's like, that's the most common reason that women run for office. Yeah. Yeah. And what were you, what, after you made the decision to run and, you know, filed your papers and got some support underneath you um, and, and the campaign got moving, what were you hoping to accomplish? Well, I started out with a sort of simple goal of wanting to make this statement. And then as the campaign unfolded, I sort of had this ridiculous kind of aha moment of like, wow, being an elected official is like being an activist with a platform and money and power. I was like, holy shit. Like it was, it sounds really stupid, but I, it hadn't really occurred to me because I was like, ugh, politicians. And then I was in it and I'm like, oh my God, wait, like I could vote on these things. Like, oh my God, wait, I could actually push these things through that I really care about. And the more that I made deeper connections with, with more elected officials and found out you sort of more of the, you know, the, the reach that they had, the more excited I was about the, you know, the, the true progressive agenda that I was, you know, that I was pushing forward and the things that I could actually do. Did the did the race ever get dirty or take a turn that you weren't expecting? Well, yeah. Um, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. Yes, I would say so. Um, and I think that maybe I was naive in my understanding of the, um, established network Mm -hmm. of the, the, the status quo for lack of a better term. All of that money, Um, all of that money and power you mentioned earlier. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and the, I, I sort of thought that because I knew a lot of these people socially, like for instance, my daughter went to high school with the daughter of, of an elected official and we'd known each other in that capacity for years and years. And I thought, Oh, we're, we're community members. Like we are both parents of, of children of the same age. Like, you know, we sort of have this like, you know, kind of human basis of, of, you know, connection of, of, of understanding. And I, I thought that that would sort of allow it to be, allow my race to, to soften everything or that that would matter. And it really didn't. Um, so that was like, that was painful to realize that like, even if you live in community with someone, like there's not going to be, there won't always be that sort of grace or sweetness or kindness. Um, and they had, that person said that they would not endorse. They were staying out of the race. They didn't want to get involved. It was too complicated, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then they did like a big surprise endorsement for one of my opponents. And it, it felt like a, a real slap in the face. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it was a particular, I mean, it wouldn't have been as shocking or painful if I hadn't known them personally for years. Yeah. So those kind of situations where, you know, there was like a, you know, a circling of the wagons, um, to keep things, you know, within 
keep keep power within certain hands or within you know certain approved hands that kiss the right rings. Um, so those kind of there was a lot of kind of moments like that 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 hurt, and I just had to keep saying this is not about me. Like I'm, I know that I'm poking. A, I knew that I was poking a bear with, and it growled. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> and it tried to bite me, and I'm like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I knew what I was doing, sort of. But like, how much can you really know before you're in it? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That was yep. a very knowing, uh-huh. Did, yep. did you experience some of that stomping, well, Jen? it was interesting because when I decided to run, um, it caused a little strife in this household and um, there was a lot of... How uh, dare you? I supported you fully from no. the very beginning. <laughs> there, <laughs> there was a little bit of strife. Um and, it, you know, there was a lot of uh, good points that you had about um, my decision. And, you know, I wasn't fully prepared for all of the things that you were just referring to, the decision making and the playing of the Game of Thrones sometimes that is expected of a person in leadership. And, you know, yeah. you think you can make a difference and you think, you know, okay, I, I, I'm elected now, I can do these things. But like, then there's all this red tape and bureaucracy that you have to now deal with and the mundane yeah. components of it, you know, whereby, you know, if you're on the ground, you're an activist or you're, you know, fighting for a specific cause, like you, you can have sort of not more of an impact, but, you know, you feel like you're doing more, you, you know, everything is sort of slower when you get <laughs> on a platform and you have to like work with other individuals to make decisions. So that's yeah. been my personal experience. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. And I think my, I think my, I think what I had said at the time was, you know, you're not ready. You should spend more time. But I mean, I was naive too in right. that advice, you know, and, and a hypocrite too, you know, as, as somebody who's um, in an elected position mm-hmm. um, within a union, fairly high level, you know, I didn't heed my own advice. Right. I jumped into that completely unprepared. And it was, you know, you, you, right. you, some things you just, you have to learn as you go. Right. Sometimes you could repair and still be unprepared. So, you know, yeah. and I think that was what I had said back to you was like, well, you're yeah. never prepared. Like when is the right time? Like there is never yeah. any really kind of right yeah. moment yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So. so true. Is, is there anything else that surprised you aside from some of that negativity um, about running Something maybe you learned about yourself or, or or something else? Well, I mean, connecting to what Jen is saying about like you don't know until you're you're doing it and like or like you can there's you 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 think you can prepare to death and then like there's nothing like actually doing it. And you know, I had read so much about, you know, the district or so much about, you know, what it's like to run for office and then but actually being in the moment of knocking on the doors of so many individuals and speaking to people all over the towns of, of the Hampshire, Franklin, Worcester district was so different than looking at statistics on a paper, right? Obviously, but it was, it still really hit my heart. Like how many people, um, were financially struggling or emotionally struggling or, or having, you know, feeling that they were not cared for or not paid attention to in some way. Um, and that's the kind of, 
those were the kind of conversations that like really fueled me and really lifted me up and kept me going. Um, because when I talked about, you know, having been a single teen mom and having been low income and having been on food stamps and blah, blah, blah. Um, when I shared my story, it opened up so many doors for people to be like, me too, or I experienced this or, you know, or, or just sharing something about their own lives. And it was so sweet. And I, that I was not prepared for at all. The, like the millions of not millions, but there's so many sweet connections that I made with people and so many nice conversations that I had and how I, I, I just like my, my love of humanity was sort of like battered and then built up like daily or hourly mm-hmm. because, you know, I had these sort of like, you know, these forces trying to keep me from winning. And then I had these like really lovely, real human being and the real sweet connections. And it was like such an interesting conundrum or such a dichotomy that I was not, I couldn't, I could never have known that it was going to happen. Yeah. And, um, obviously you, you weren't successful in the campaign. What was the, the outcome who ended up, who ended up, um, prevailing in that race? <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. <laughs> it's like you're making me say it. Sorry. <laughs> she who shall not be named. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, that I, that was another big surprising part of this race is that I had hmm. been in so many feminist activist circles where yeah. women support women and women back each other up. And mm-hmm. Joe Comerford was my friend before we ran. Okay. And I ran, I announced my candidacy long before she did. And I even asked her for advice before I ran and called her and was like, Hey, what do you think? I'm going to do this and da da da. And she never said once, Hey, actually I'm thinking about running. Cause uh, if she had, I would say, Ooh, I won't because I know right, that you right. are far more established than I am. And she didn't treat me with kindness or respect. And I will say this, like, I will say this to her face. Like that hurt me so much. Um, that she let me go ahead and run and didn't, you know, yeah. um, didn't support me or didn't, he wasn't honest with me. Um, and didn't even tell me, you know, as, as the campaign was beginning, like, or, or as my, as my campaign was well, you know, well established, she didn't communicate with me to let me know that she was going to be running. Yeah. I had to hear it from many other people. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was a shock that you know that a woman would do that to a friend who obviously we're no longer friends um but she won and i congratulated her i I mean she ran an amazing campaign and i think she's doing a great job um and we had many of the same values um and a very similar platform and i think it got really confusing for people um for voters um so thank god it was a you know a a smart progressive woman who who won and who is looking out for the district well so i will say that you know very genuinely like thank god (laughs) she is taking care of the district well and she's not some scary republican that is you know (laughs) doing scary things yeah i mean and it it's it and it sounds like it was a a a a journey with lots of ups and downs along the way you know that maybe don't fully balance out i'm not i'm not sure i mean it just it sounds like it was it was a, a not an easy experience uh, even though you know it had some highs and it sounds like it certainly had some some lows would you run again I might. Um, a lot of people are asking me to run for mayor right now. Um, 
<laughs> which I will I will not be doing. Okay. Um, but it but it it definitely is is on my mind as something that um, I know how to do it now, right? I mean, right. I think it's it's like amnesia with childbirth. You have your first kid, and then two years later, you're like, oh, I can do that again. It wasn't so bad. Yeah. Which I know I know it is actually that bad. <laughs> it's really hard, but I think it would be easier um, the second time because I would you know, have a little bit more of a sense of what the heck I was getting into. Um, but I might, but I'm not, I am not sure at all. And, you know, similar to you two, um, there was strife in my home as well, as far as people saying, this is crazy. And what are you doing? And this yeah. is really stressful. Yeah. And, ah, yeah. And, and I so, think, yeah, I mean, as a, as a generator of some of that strife, you know, like, and when I look, <laughs> when I turn the lens inward, you know, it's about fear. You know, it's about fear of, you know, seeing somebody, you, you know, you love and care for being hurt, seeing them potentially outshine you, even though that's impossible. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry, I'm joking. He's not. <laughs> I, I, no, I am joking. Jen outshines me all the time. Um, but, you know, it, but what I'm saying is like that in hindsight, I can see that it was about my own fear and my own uncertainty. Ooh. Right. And. Um, you know, eventually, thankfully, I, I came around to seeing that it was something very important to you, mm-hmm. and I and I got Ooh. on board, you know, mm-hmm. quickly. But you know, it's it. And sometimes I think giving stepping aside or back and giving people space to grow also isn't easy. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's really yeah. it's a difficult thing to do. Right, the um, constant dance of marriage, right? Like stepping yeah. in and stepping back and stepping to the side, and yeah. it is so complicated, right? Yeah. yeah, but only only speaking for myself there. Yeah. I do, I do, I do think that, you know, we're setting these role models, like we're role models for our children. Like we're showing them, you know, even if we're not successful, that they can do these things also, right? Like, so I think we deserve it. <laughs> I keep touching the board. He's and Chelsea. Like, That's what I'm saying. I oh, said, okay. we deserve oh. these. I, I thought you were including me in that we. How oh, dare you? All three, all three of them. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. Um, Okay, so um, what other, I'm curious what other um, uh, social or political causes are important to you? What else do you put your energy into? Oh, well. I, you could pick I a mean, few, person- fa- you could pick a few favorites. Oh. You, don't have to, you don't have to do them all. You don't have to do them all. <laughs> I mean, it depends on on the, the, the moment, but I mean, I, I first and foremost, loud and proud Black Lives Matter all day, all night. Um, and that is you know, a a big, a big part of my, of my writing and my focus, um, uh, reproductive rights, um, for sure has been a big, a big part of my life. I mean, I worked for national network of abortion funds. I was an intern and that was through the reproductive rights activist service Corps. I was a groupie for the civil liberties and public policy project at Hampshire college. And they put on a reproductive rights and social justice conference every year that, um, I went to for years and years and helped to organize. And they really, you know, blew my mind as far as the, you know, the breadth of the reproductive rights movement and, and really what it can look like and how we can lift each other up and how we can support each other to live, you know, really mm-hmm. full, rich, juicy lives. Um, I'm very sex positive And I think that's also, um, you know, a form of my activism um, and the way that I raise my kids and talking about bodies and bodily functions and all those things and, you know, love and gender and sex and all those things. Um, so that's a big, a big part of who I am and what I think is really important. Um, and I'm also, um, very passionately protective of, of trans rights and trans autonomy and, and 
and just loving human beings <laughs> mm-hmm. and being decent to human beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just like, he's absorbing. Yeah. I'm sitting, I'm, yeah, I'm sitting, I'm sitting with that for a moment. Right. And thinking about, you know, how much work there still is to do not only, you know, to defend mm-hmm. uh, reproductive rights of yeah. of women in this country and like reflecting that we're sitting here in 2020 and that that is a you know that is a battle that's not won and it's 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 shocking and horrifying but also yeah you know with all of these old white men in mm-hmm. office who love to um, think they can control men, women's bodies I shouldn't be surprised by it either right. but here's my fear right is that the generation kind of ahead of ours, the the peace and love generation, the '60s generation, you know, they they were supposed to be the ones to help move the needle and and you know they and affect real change at the national level. And like here we are, trapped in the same old situation. Those people are now in power. They've been, in my opinion, seduced by money and the influence of lobbyists and they, they haven't moved the needle. Like here we are sitting with president Trump, like somehow, somehow the peace and love generation let that happen. And like, I, I think about that and I worry that the, the money and power associated with politics, just once it gets a hold of people, they get sucked into that self-perpetuating system. Well, I have two things to say to that. Yeah, please. One is, change is really hard and takes a lot of time. And the peace and love generation did not fail. They did not fall down. Like things come in waves, things move like a pendulum. They impacted so much positive change. And, and there's a lot of them are still with us and still, you know, still have their little bumper stickers and still showing up to marches. So like, they're not done yet. Um, and like, you know, the way that the pendulum moves, like we're, we're in a little bit of a, a little bit, like we're in a backlash, (laughs) a big backlash, um, which is painful and terrible. But I also think that that what we can gain from that in a positive way is that it's really galvanizing people to not be asleep at the wheel and to not take shit for granted. Yeah. And what other choice do we have? Like, we have to stay hopeful. We have to stay active. Like there's no other choice. We're not going to lay down and just give the fuck up. Yeah. I agree. I love that response. That's part of why I asked the question. <laughs> You're not trying to bring us down. You're well, trying it to get was, us riled it, up. It was funny because he posted something on Facebook today. And um, uh, the response he got from somebody, he started an exchange. And it was sort of, he was sort of not pessimistic, but like it was more pragmatic and realistic and painting like of how he saw it, just like he was doing now. And she was like, Oh no. Oh no, we can't. Like exactly like yeah. you just said. Like we we can't like just accept that and roll over <laughs> and like we need to like keep keep going just like you just said. So Right. Yeah. So right. there is but, that know, sentiment I, out there. Good. Good. Yes, of yes. course. Yeah. We yeah. got we have to stay hopeful. But also, I mean, like when things are too <sighs> feeling too easy, then people kind of tune out and do other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I mean, when I when I got into reproductive justice it was i guess the mid 90s and we couldn't we couldn't fathom that roe v wade would ever be rolled back like it was it was like oh it was like a done deal things are fine we can pay attention to other shit and then when it started to be you know eroded and and their like attacks started to mount then it was like a wake-up call 
for us to not let our guard down. So I think it's important for these like terrible, as terrible as they are and the atrocities that are happening, like this is all very acutely painful and terrifying. And it's also important for us to keep our guard up on the left and to like stay vigilant and stay hopeful and not, you know, not get slack. Yeah. Yep. I noticed too, when I was creeping your LinkedIn page earlier (laughs) that you've, um, you've worked with um, non-traditional college students. Can you tell us about who they are and um, what you learned from working with them? Oh, what a great question. Um, So I was a non-traditional student and I think technically that really means anybody over the age of 24, even though that's, that's also a little kind of squishy. It just means like someone who is not doing the like standard college path of straight from high school, age 18, going right into a residential situation. I mean, essentially more and more students are becoming quote unquote non-traditional because they're, they're taking gap years or they're doing it online or they're, you know, working or whatever they're doing. Like people are kind of doing a little bit more of a piecemeal, um, you know, kind of set up to, to earn their degree or they're getting it later, which is becoming more and more often because or more and more frequent because people are, you know, trying to decide what they actually want to do with their lives or waiting till they're more financially, you know, whatever. Um, so the students that I worked with, were over the age of 24. That's how we sort of defined it. Um, But generally, the women that I worked with were in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I even had a woman in her 80s. Um, And like I said, I had been a non-traditional student. I went to Smith College as an Ada Comstock scholar. So I already had a kid. I was in my late 20s um, and had somewhat of a clear sense of what I wanted to do. So I sort of got in and got out um, instead of, you know, doing the, the sort of more traditional path of like meandering and exploring and blah, 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 blah. Um, so what I learned from those women, um, I guess that, that life is long and like, it's short, but it's long because we can have so many chapters and Mm -hmm. the women that I worked with, you know, from plumbers to, uh, even, you know, people who had run their own business, like so many incredible, strong human beings that had done so much already, and didn't feel complete without a degree for various reasons, which is, you know, partly the sort of smoke and mirrors of higher ed, but also partly because, you know, it becomes such a threshold for jobs, but also, you know, like it feels good to earn, to earn something. Right. And to have this, you know, this piece of paper saying, you know, I'm an educated human being, even though we know education comes in so many other forms. Um, and it was so, so exciting to work with these women that had, you know, you know, so much so many stories to tell and so much ahead of them. And they were able to, you know, pull from their backgrounds and to, you know, build on what they had already lived through and, and grow in new ways that they had never expected. So it was really a a really joyful time in my life working in higher education with, with these older women. Um, And, you know, and I was talking earlier about the, the imposter syndrome it pained me <laughs> the lack mm-hmm. of confidence um, that I saw in in so many ferocious, awesome human beings, and and that would that would really kept me going in the work of just like, like you're so amazing. Let me just hold up a mirror. So that was like my number one job is just holding up a mirror and being like, look, look how great mm-hmm. you are. Look how great you are. Look how great you are. Um, and that was a, a really really fulfilling work. Are, have you stayed in touch with any of those people um, yeah. after their journey? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, they're in all different, all different kinds of 
positions and all different jobs now. Yeah. Um, I got to run a really cool program called the Women Empowered as Learners and Leaders program um, that was sort of part confidence building and part career um, prep and then part experiential learning. And I got to revamp the curriculum while I was there and do some really, really fun things with it um, and bring in contemplative practices and teach them, you know, basic mindfulness and um, bring in some like really cool service learning stuff. And it was, it was so fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you were, you were a non-traditional student as well. And I think I'm hearing that helped you maybe even push you into that particular work and helped you probably do it more um, effectively because you had experience as a non-traditional student. Um, would, how, how did, I'm curious, like how, were you, were you acutely aware of kind of your non-traditional status as a student at, at that time? And how did, how did you feel um, did the did the college support you in that, or is it is it something they did they didn't really pay attention to at that point? Hmm. Well, I think, and I would I would guess that things are different. I mean, obviously, totally different now. But I mean, sort of aside from you know the virus shaking everything up, I think that older students are a bit more accepted. Not that I wasn't accepted, but I was just such a small, um, I was part of such a small cohort. Um, I mean, at Smith in particular, like they're a very residentially focused school and they're, they're, they're pretty focused on, um, you know, the 18 to 22 year old set. Um, so I don't know if I really felt like I belonged, quote unquote, but I didn't really feel like I didn't belong. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was pretty focused on what I wanted to do and I also had a a little girl, um, who came with me to a lot of things. I dragged her to a lot of meetings and marches and, you know, whatever. Um, so that, I think I would have slipped below the radar a little bit more, Mm -hmm. or I would have, I just, you know, I, I don't know if I would have noticed it as much, or I wouldn't have stood out as much if I didn't have, you know, my, my cute kiddo bobbing along with me. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's really, really hard to, replicate the residential traditional experience if you have to do dinner and stories and bedtime by 8 30 you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um so i i think i got as much out of it as i possibly could given the fact that you know i couldn't really do it all yeah um but you know smith is smith is a really unique community and i wish i had been able to take more out of it i would say yeah and you've done some work in, um, in women's career in leadership development as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, it, it's, it's very much connected to the, that sort of, you know, that confidence building and the, um, that I was speaking about earlier, um, as far as opening up, you know, possibilities for people and suggesting that possibilities can exist. Um, I mean, I worked with a lot of students that sort of said like, you know, I have always been doing this and I'm supposed to do this. And my dad said, I'm good at this and this is what I do. And then once we sort of, you know, unraveled that a little bit, it, you know, oftentimes it would come clear, actually, I really hate that thing, but I was told I had to do that thing, or I was told I was good at that thing, or it was the only, my only option or whatever, whatever. Um, so there was a lot of conversations that happened, um, particularly with, with older students. I mean, I didn't, I didn't work so much with, with younger students, but 
seems to me that younger students have a lot more um, of an expansive idea of their of their possibilities um as individuals it seems to me um but again i haven't worked with younger students um but i think with older students they get this very like i think older women in particular get sort of like they get hemmed in but for whatever from whatever forces um or lack of confidence or lack of money or or, or perceived lack of time or Mm -hmm. lack of options um so that was i think a big part of my work was sort of like you know blowing that up a little bit and and you know, <laughs> again, holding up that mirror and being like, mm-hmm. what do you really want? What's, what's most important to you? What's really exciting to you? Like, let's really figure this out. Um, so that was my, my work in, in supporting women's careers and, and leadership. And that was, um, like I said, really, really deep, good heart work that, yeah. you know, and, felt and, really important. And I'm, a, and I'm thinking about something you said earlier, which is a lot of people at that stage don't think they have a lot of runway ahead of them. So being asked that question, like, what do you want to do? Like, where do you want to go at a, at a later point in your life might be really scary. And like, people might even think I can't answer that question. What do you mean? You know, I'm I'm in my thirties or forties and I've got nowhere left to go, (laughs) you know, like, and I think that's a really hopeful thing to do to, to get them to think that, you know, there is more for you. You know, right. you don't have to be hemmed in. Right, right. The scarcity right, model is. <laughs> Sorry, I like I'm reading this completely different, I think, yeah. than you are. I'm saying but... that I, I think for older students, right, Yeah, they, they may not think that there is a lot of um, opportunity ahead of them right? For somebody like later in their life, right? Even though they're back at school, like for whatever reason, they may not think they have the time in front of them to make a major shift. But what I'm hearing Chelsea say is one of the things she did was really talk to people about, you know, you're not out of time. There's, you know, you have the time left in your life to do whatever you want with it. She's holding up the mirror. Jen, what do you think? I have like so many thoughts now. Like, yeah, like... (laughs) Well, okay, like, like, these are the things that come up in my head. Like when I went back to grad school, after being in the real, the quote unquote, real world for almost five years. And I just remember like sitting in, um, I, I went through an MBA program. And we had this professional seminar course. And, you know, they were like, well, where do you want to be in five to 10 years, you know, and like, I wasn't a traditional MBA student, even though I went back for that, you know, and you think like MBA, like high powered, like I've never taken that very seriously. And I just remember her looking at me and I was like, well, I'm going to have a family in five years. And she just looked at me and she was like, why are you here? And I was like, what do you mean? Why am I here? Cause I want to get an advanced degree. And you know, like how, how dare you like even suggest that I cannot have a family and, have an MBA and do whatever it is the fuck that I want to do. Was she asking it in that way or was she asking you to ask yourself? No, she was serious. Like it was like UMass Eisenberg. It's like, you know, every, a lot, most, most of the people in my class went on to do high powered falutin shit. And I stayed in the Valley and I built my own thing out here. You know, it's like, I didn't have a, a, so when I think of myself, you know, I'm not, I didn't go back to school. I did do more traditional college, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think of myself as a non-traditional type person in the industry that I work. Like, 
sorry, I'm not going to go off. I have diarrhea of the mouth. But like when I think about like, you know, I started getting tattoos later in life after I had my children. And, you know, like I had this very specific course where everything I did sort of led me into um, like exposing myself, like finding my niche, like finding like I don't give a shit if you are a client and you care that I have tattoos, like, I don't want to work with you. You don't want to work with me. I don't want to work with you. You know, that kind of idea (laughs) that, you know, that a lot of women, unless they have support or, you know, they may not feel that way, I think is like really where I'm driving towards. And it's always been in my nature to kind of have like positions of power because I'm a nudgenik and like I need to be I need to know what's happening like literally that's how I become like a manager like that's my personality I need to know want to be in the room where it happens the room where it happens the room where it happens I want to be Hamilton I do like I need to know (laughs) it's like my need to know has driven me into these leadership positions throughout my life like I need to like know who you are so I can connect with you and then maybe that connection will lead me to somewhere else I don't know where I'm going with this conversation I don't know I've like led us astray but that's like when I was listening to you talk that's like those are the things that were coming up for me and then I think about the fact that you and I talk Sawtooth about um you know he's always felt that you know he's sort of been boxed in so it's like the flip side right he he's a man but he feels like he's boxed into what he is doing right now and I'm constantly reminding him I'm like you don't have to like you you want to write a book like just do it like you're not he's like I'm too old I'm like no you're not you're never too old I need that mirror that Chelsea has <laughs> get, get over here and hold that yeah. thing up to, yeah get that yeah. thing over here and hold that up <laughs> so to we're, not, we're not empowering women we're empowering yeah. all people you know but like yes. you know this idea that like you know it mm-hmm. it isn't too late you know you can do those creative pursuits in your right. life and yeah that's what I mean like life is short and long right like yeah. it goes so fast Except when we really slow down and be like, my God, we have so many chapters and we have possibilities if only we like have the cojones to like grab them and do it, you know, which is really, really scary and hard. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that at all. It is fucking scary and fucking hard. Mm -hmm. And when we believe in ourselves and when we push ourselves and when we say, I'm going to write that damn book, then we can do it. Right. Right. Um, exactly. Changing gears a little bit. Um, I know. I noticed your two your two degrees are in religious studies. I thought that was really interesting. Um, how did How did you come to study religion? I went to Smith because I was going to be pre med and I was going to be an abortion provider. And I got into all these high level chemistry classes, and I went, "Oh, oh, oh no." Nope. (laughs) My brain does not do this and Mm -hmm. it does not do this well. And I will not be a service to the world if I can't do this. (laughs) So I was like, okay, shit, how can I still be part of the reproductive rights movement um, and help and be a good doobie um, and use my skills? And so I was actually taking an intro to world religions class when I was having that little bit of a freak out in my first semester um, and was very happily um, introduced to Joel Kaminsky, who became my advisor and is now my friend and somebody who I greatly admire and trust. And I talked to him a lot about like, why, why are these old white men so preoccupied with what's happening in a, in a woman's uterus? And 
we've talked a lot about this. Yeah. Um, and I went, oh my God, I can study religion and I can really dig into that question and I can write an honors thesis about this. And that's exactly what I did. Wow. Um, so I thought if I'm going to be an activist and I'm going to keep pushing and keep trying to fix things and keep trying to make, you know, the world more inclusive and more compassionate and, and a hell of a lot more respectful about women's bodies and women's choices, then I better understand what the hell I'm talking about. And I don't want to go marching into anyone's home or anyone's, you know, community and say, you need to do this without understanding why they are making the choices that they're making or the beliefs that they might have, or the, you know, <laughs> umpteen years of history that have led, led us to this place. Um, so that is why I, I went into religion and that is why I, I wrote a thesis about modern reproductive technology and Jewish law, because I really wanted to look at the pre-embryo and the embryo and, and who gets to decide what's viable and what's not and, and everything that happens around that pre-embryo and its creation and its possible destruction or its possible, you know, coming to form a form a human being and the rabbis that are in charge of that and i found that to be very very meaty and very very interesting so yeah. that's why i did that at smith and my advisor at the time was um a harvard person and she said you need to go and get your master's in theological studies and keep going with this um and i said yes <laughs> i will do that <laughs> thinking that i was going to be an academic i think is really what i thought um that i would go on to get my phd um, I don't actually, I don't know exactly if I had my path mapped out, but I was like excited to go there and keep digging in. And I had this sort of fantasy that I was, I'm also very um, anti-routine male infant circumcision in the Jewish tradition. And that was another part of my activism. Um, and I did not circumcise my sons. And I wrote about that quite a bit. Um, and I wanted to go and like really dig into that as an activist when I got to Harvard Divinity School. Um, and one of the preeminent Jewish scholars around circumcision was there. And I had this fantasy that I was going to go and like take his class and we were really going to get into it. And I was like, <laughs> ah! I was too scared of him. <laughs> um, so I, I did a lot of writing and research without having like a major smackdown with this really super brilliant, amazing professor. <laughs> Cause I was like, what am I doing? Like, I don't want to fight with this guy. He's yeah. amazing. And he has his beliefs and I don't need to fight yeah. with him. Um, so then I realized that like, I did not want to stay in the sort of higher echelons of religion in higher ed. Um, and that I wanted to get more, you know, with the people and, yeah. um, did not go on for my PhD. Yep. Um, you mentioned Judaism twice. Um, is your, um, religious or spiritual background in, um, the Jewish religion or Judaism? Yes and no. I grew up, um, I would say more culturally Jewish, um, without much of an understanding of really what that meant, which I think is what led me to study religion as an adult to say like, what the hell is this all about? Um, so yes, I, I, I am, I am Jewish. Um, I definitely identify as a Jew, but not in a, not in a very strictly spiritual sense. I'd say more in a cultural sense and, and loving the history and, um, being as many Jews are very critical of a lot of the traditions, um, mm -hmm. and also sort of, you know, enchanted by the, the way that Judaism can be very, um, fluid and very, um, malleable. And I think that's a, that's, that's the reason it survived all these years is because <laughs> people have been able yeah. to adapt it and make it their own. So yes, I am a Jew. <laughs> so, um, one question I grapple with a, a lot <laughs> 
Sorry, did you want to jump in? No, it's okay. Fine. What's funny? No, I'm just thinking. Now you're just reminding yeah. me about that piece of writing that you did that like totally hit the nail on the head for me about the otherness of being Jewish and like what that particular piece of the puzzle means for things like Black Lives Matter, like where it's like there's all this anti-Semitism out in the world and and it's like a yes and, you know, like, but we're also yeah. presenting as white. So unless you have this conversation or, you know, it's it's one of these things that it's it's hard to, to kind of, I struggled with it a lot when this uh, yeah. most latest round of movement had, you know, came to the forefront of the news. Um, but it yeah. was, it was a hard thing to, to grapple with, but Chelsea wrote this amazing piece and it just totally resonated with me. I yeah. wish I could remember the exact like quote, but yeah. Conditional whiteness, conditional whiteness. Yeah. Which yeah. is not, not my term, but one that I used in that piece. And thank you, Jen. That yeah. means a lot to me like that. That's really, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally fan fangirl out on Chelsea's writing. So. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I promise. Oh, don't worry. Um, we'll get there. <laughs> um, one question I have as as the um, maybe not the only, but as a as a self identified agnostic leaning atheist in the room, and this is a question I've asked myself a lot, but I want to ask somebody who actually has gone to um, who studied world religions, this question is why do you think that we seek spiritual and religious meaning as a, as a, as a sentient animal? Like, why is that something that we seem to need? Hmm. What a beautiful question. I think because there's so many unknowns, I think that's one avenue or one reason. And I also think that, life is really fucking scary and it's comforting to have a story or a narrative or a reason or whatever, whatever you hang your hat on. Like that's comforting for a lot of people and to have some kind of like, you know, gutter bumpers, right. When you go bowling, (laughs) like you know, you're traveling (laughs) down this path, like going really fast. You're like, Oh shit, am I going to hit the pins? That's such a great metaphor. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like that's what religion is. I think for a lot of people, like it's going to keep me out of the gutters (laughs) and I'm very aware of the double entendre there. (laughs) But seriously, Mm -hmm. like I think that if people feel like there's some boundaries on their lives or there's some rules to live by, then it doesn't feel like this chaotic free fall. Um, and I think for some people, like, you know, that can be, that can be viewed in a really negative way that they're, you know, they they need this sort of parental force. And for other people, it's really beautiful and really liberating and, and really important and, and is the sort of basis of, of everything that they do. Um, so I think it's part fear and I think it's part wonder. And I think it's part, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unknowns, right? Like, yeah. Like the planet is majestic and wild and amazing. And I think a lot of us forget that half the time. And I think some of religion is based around like, you know, imploring people to stop and see that, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, my problems with Christianity are the, like the dominion over the planet and like, you know, everything's here to serve us. And I think that can, you know, cause people to sort of like forget to relish in the natural beauty sometimes that sort of basis of Christianity. But, but I think, there's also so many aspects of Christianity that, that get people to really, you know, marvel at, 
at their life and marvel at, you know, the gifts that they're given and the time that they have here. Yeah. Do you, um, after, after having gone through all this training and, um, I'm wondering where 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 you come down now on the on the existence of a god. Mm. <laughs> oh, we're going for it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I have to ask the question. No, no, no. Oh, you know, when I talk to my kids about this, I say, and I and this is really what I believe that I think God is different for every single person. And I also think that God is, is everywhere. And that's what reminds us to be kind to each other and kind to ourselves and kind to animals and kind to plants. And because like everything is sacred in some way or everything is like imbued with, with that, like, like an element of, of God or spirit or whatever it is. Um, and like our, our definitions can shift moment by moment and each, each of our views can shift moment by moment. Like I just see it as a sort of like ever, ever shifting spectrum of, um, of understanding. Yeah. Um, so I have like a very sort of expansive and, and loosey goose view that's sort of all about being gentle, I guess, really. So I, not like a, you know, a bearded, father figure in the sky <laughs> yeah what do you think stopping oh, Jen? it's so interesting so i like you i'm culturally jewish but i don't really have much more of a connection um for some reason i'm really thinking about this morning i was reading this i think it was an article about a book called clean um the book is called clean the book is called yeah. clean and it's about um this he's a doctor he's a something he wrote a book um about skin and about how your skin is this like one of your major organs in your yeah. body and there's so many things that live on your skin yeah. and are pooping and like eating your skin and like doing all like you have like and i think about that right and i think about on my fingertip there's probably like so many creatures right and so when I think about that, it's like it's simultaneously, how can there be this like person, God, like creature watching us all and like caring if like, you know, you know, you win the game or the whatever, like it's just, it's such nonsense. Like if you think about science and like what it means and like how many worlds there are out there, like that's what I think. It's not so much of a God, but it's like, I believe in science. Like I believe that there, are, you know, just, I don't know where I'm right. going with that, but right. And, and, but science is also magical, right? It's like amazing. the way that our human, like our bodies function, like that's fucking magical. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like orgasms are magical. <laughs> <laughs> like everything. It's just crazy. Yes. Yeah. It really this is. Pandemic. I mean, this pandemic, I mean, look at it. It's, completely destroyed society this little virus Not completely well it's on its way but you know what yeah. i mean 
I can, I can Shaking still, things up quite uh, a bit. Yes. I could still go to Target and get um, beard bum. I think society <laughs> is still society is still working. <laughs> yeah, for the most part. Oh, I don't even I, want to think I, about like, it. Within this privileged corner of the world, it's still working. I right? don't want to think about the biome in your beard. <laughs> yeah, get over here and explore my biome in my beard. Um, well, I'm definitely a beard fan, yeah. so rock on with your beard bomb. <laughs> you. uh, where, where do you, you didn't answer the question? Me? Yeah, you asked us both. Um, well, you said you were an atheist. I'm an atheist, but that doesn't that mean I don't think there's a higher power, right? Mm. I, you know, you've heard me talk about this a lot. I think it's more likely than not that we live in a simulation, and so does do the creators of that simulation count as gods or a god you know i, I don't know think about that yeah i know I it's so this is this is tough so but you know so that act of creation is that hitting the enter button and running the simulation on whatever machines they're running it on maybe maybe that qualifies as a god and a creator but do i believe in a omniscient sentient being watching over us and like you said you know, getting involved in the Red Sox game? No, probably mm-hmm. not. I don't believe in that. So, you know, and, and I think that leads me to the question about what do you think um, as a as a religious scholar of sorts about an afterlife? And would your would your question be, or would your answer be kind of similar? What do you what would you where would you come down on that? Oh God. <laughs> Oh, sorry, sorry. Asking all the hard <laughs> questions tonight. If this is too, if you, if you don't want to go there, that's okay. We don't. No, no, let's go there. Um, I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, I I really bristle at the thought of there being like punishment and purgatory, and like that just seems so like such a sort of like a just a juvenile, you know, setup this like threatening, you know, wagging finger over your head for your whole life. But, you know, this bad thing will happen if you're bad. Um, I just really don't believe in that. Um, I think of, you know, energy sort of being like dispersed and redistributed and reconfigured. So I yeah. have more of like a, you know, a, a little bit of a, mm-hmm. a softer, a softer view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't, I don't know. What about yeah. you two? I mean, for me, it's something I desperately want to be a thing. Yeah. Right. Because I think, you know, like, like a lot of people, um, you know, I, the, the thought of my consciousness ending terrifies me. Right. It's a scary thought for me. So I, like, I, I want, I want that to be able to go on forever. So what about you stomping Jen? <sighs> yeah, I don't, I don't No. Um, it makes me so sad, you know, it, it does. It makes me sad to think like, you know, like I'll never see my mom again or my grandparents or like whatever, but. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Will you though? Like, so know. I've had a number of dreams, I think that may, maybe sometimes make me question this idea about people's energies living on in some form where, you know, I, you know, like many people, you know, mm-hmm. like a pro- all of us here have probably lost somebody close to us. And they've, some of those people have appeared to me in my dreams. And in those dreams, like I've had, it, it's weird. They're almost like lucid dreams where I, 
had the conversation with them, like, well, you passed on. How, how can you be here? And then we just had this whole conversation. And like one was with my grandmother. She's like, well, I got to go. It was really nice, you know, seeing you after all this time. And then I woke up. Yeah. Like, it was just so weird because it was so her. And it didn't feel That's like really a dream. Cool. It didn't feel like a dream. Yeah. You know, but I, That's- but again, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to double down on that. So. I don't know. I love that story though. That's really cool. I mean, I yeah. think that falling in love with friends or mm-hmm. with whoever that, that sort of makes me believe in that redistribution of energy as I, that, that I said, like, like, what is that? Like, how can I just look at someone and be like, I know that I love you. Like, yeah. like maybe we knew each other in this other way or parts of me knew parts of you in, a, in another way in another configuration like that, that kind of like, that gives me a little bit of a thrill. Like there, you know, yeah. I think there's, I think there's something to it. Like I think falling in love with people is, I don't know that, that really sparks that kind of like, huh, there's so much mystery here, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope, I hope so. <laughs> That's all yeah. I can I say. So. I know. Yeah. Um, you know, dig, I mean, digging a little bit kind of deeper in this realm, if it's okay. I noticed also that you've, you've done some advocacy and some work around end of life care. Um, yeah. and that, that's something that's important to me is, um, having had two loved ones go through the hospice process. Mm. So I'm just kind of, I'm curious, I'm curious about, I wanted to ask how you got involved kind of in that, um, that area of human work. Yeah. Very, very much related. Um, and very much related to reproductive rights. When Mm. we're thinking about who has a say over their body and what happens in that body or with that body and at what time and who's in control and, uh, who we believe. I mean, it's, 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 mirror parallel arguments um and that's what really opened my heart to that work is because when i saw that you know people were suffering or feeling trapped or feeling unheard um when they were um suffering or um or or simply wanting autonomy over their bodies um and and i was exposed to death with dignity and that movement um mostly when i was running for office um that was an issue that um, I needed to research um, before a, a debate or, you know, I, it was an issue that was on the table in Massachusetts and still is. Um, and the more I read about it, the more I realized that this was really important to me and and very much connected to activism work that I had done um, prior. And so I spoke publicly about it um, when I ran for office and, and you know, and, you know, st- stood firmly in my support of Death with Dignity. Um, and then that sort of put me on the, you know, kind of national radar, um, as a, as a vocal supporter. Um, and so I became the interim executive director of end of life choices, New York, um, where, you know, there's a big push to legalize and a big push that's been going for a while to legalize, um, in New York state. Um, so that, that work, like I said, very much aligned with what I had been doing before and, you know, um, supporting activists and supporting, you know, constituents and, you know, they, they had a lobbyist. Um, so it was, you know, a a lot of, a lot of fundraising and a lot of organizing and a lot of, you know, um, sort of strategic thinking about like, how can we, um, you know, stay a step ahead of, um, the critics, 
um, or the, you know, the people on, on, on opposing sides, um, mm-hmm. to, to the movement and how can we, you know, <laughs> how can we make this into law and how can we allow people to have control over their bodies is really yeah. what it came down to. Yeah. It's interesting <clears throat> when my mom was really sick, I remember talking to the physician about choices, right? Yeah. Treatment choices are not to treat. And he's like, I can't tell you this while I'm on the clock. He's like, come see me in an hour. And mm. I remember going and talking to him afterwards, right? After he mm-hmm. had punched out and he wasn't on the clock. And he was like, he basically said, your mom's really sick. She's never going to get better. The most, the best thing you can do right now for her is to get her to a hospice and just let, let her body do what it wants to do. He mm. said, we, he said, we are fighting an uphill battle. The decks are so stacked against her, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. and, and I think about, I think about how he couldn't tell me that on the clock, yeah. right? And how that was a yeah. bad thing to tell me. And, right. you know, the alternative would have been, you know, she, you know, she probably could have been kept Lens alive for years weird. longer, like yeah. you know, on various other types of treatments, but you know, he, but he wanted to, he wanted to like talk to me about that. I think what he saw as a more dignified option, right? It's like, get her, get her to it, get her to a place where she can, you know, be comfortable and, you know, and I think. You struggle with this though. I'm not so much, not so much anymore. I mean, I was plagued with nightmares for years about the decision, um, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, I would, I like, I would walk into a room and I would see my mom sitting in a bed and I would, and she'd be like, oh, hi. I'd be like, well, what are you doing here? You passed away. She's like, no, 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 no. You didn't mean to do that. Um, I'm still alive. Here, have a slice of pizza. And she'd be like eating a whole pizza. <laughs> like, it was like the weirdest <laughs> dreams though, where like, I, like you said, you know, my parts of my brain struggled mm-hmm. with it for a long time. You know, now how long has it been 15 16 years later i'm 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 much more comfortable that we did the right you know we absolutely made the right decision but yeah. um you know but it it leads me to the question i think um like you know why are we so afraid of death like i know the obvious thing is you know because we end right but right. i think culturally i'm thinking like why are we so afraid of death for other people well, and I then, think. you know, like, sorry, I don't know why it's, I hope this doesn't sound crass when I say it out loud, but like, you know, you brought up like the punishment, right? And people living in purgatory or hell or whatever, yeah. like suicides, like people who can't, that's a cho- choice. I mean, sometimes it's not, sometimes, I don't know what I'm what trying, are you trying to, to say. say. I'm trying to say like, it's a decision, you know, like, I don't know. And there's stigma around it that you get punished if you kill yourself. But sometimes yeah. there's mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think so I don't know if that's like the. I think the, I think it's I think yeah I mean I think it's important to break that down to you right. know like people who might be terminally ill right. versus yeah. somebody who um, might be struggling with a mental health issue because of like unfair societal pressures right like I think we should absolutely do everything we can well, to help yeah to help people who um, see suicide as their only way out, right? When they're not right. like terminally ill. I don't I'm know. That's that whole conversation. That's how I feel. And so I guess it's a question 
um, Chelsea, does that work? The, the, um, the work that you, you have done in that area, is it about people with terminal illnesses mostly or is it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you both bring up really great points. And I think that, you know, you, you touched on in that story of your mom, and I'm so sorry for that, that the, the doctor spoke off the clock because hospice doesn't make money. So I think part of this, you know, extreme discomfort with death is that a major part of our culture is the, you know, preserve life at all cost that has been perpetuated by our hospital industrial complex, which is a money-making machine and keeps people alive well beyond what many people want or many people can afford or, or even makes any sense. And so when he had to punch off the clock so that he wasn't speaking on hospital terms or hospital time, that's, you just really got to the heart of it, right? Like he was speaking yeah. about your mom's in her, in her best interests and looking out for her as a human being, not as an agent of a giant corporation. Yeah. And so there's that piece of things, which has made us removed so much of the natural process of, of aging and dying. And this, of course, our obsession with youth and everything new and shiny but removed our our interactions with with aging and dying and the natural the natural ways that that people do die um and taken so much of our agency away from us so that it i think it's added to the terror and made it so much more of an unknown and and really disempowered us and really disconnected us as human beings yeah and also yeah. like you know people get shuttled off to die too yeah, yeah. So many oh, right. times. Right. Right. Nobody wants to watch it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, right. and I think, I think there's a, a lack of um, like Chelsea was saying, and like you're saying, you know, th- there's a lack of education around it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we get lots of education around birthing and being new parents and, you know, how to run a life, you know, in theory, you know, although, some of that's bullshit, but, but, you know, nobody, nobody, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, you know, having been in two hospice type of situations, you know, I wasn't fully prepared for it, but there, but there was a, there was a spiritual beauty to it, um, in both of those instances. And, you know, I, I'm, I feel, you know, lucky that I was able to be there, but, mm-hmm. you know, also, you know, it was, you know, also intense. And, yeah. but, but part of that is I had no idea what to expect, right. ba- except right. for what I read on the internet. And that's no way to learn about anything. Sex, right. you know, birth, you know, you shouldn't have to read about that stuff on the internet. Right. right? right. So. But I think all of the education and empowerment that goes into childbirth or running a life, like you said, like there's, there's money to be made in helping people understand those processes. And there's a lot more money to be made in keeping death hidden from people mm-hmm. because there's that, like, if only, if only, if only, and perpe- the endless sort of perpetuating of life that 
sometimes is good for people, but not always. And it's not a one size fits all. And that's where the money is made. And that's what's so scary about it. Um, And I don't think that um, the powers that be in those realms want us to know that there is, um, there can be so much (laughs) power and, and spiritual beauty, as you said, in, in that, in the hospice process. Um, and, and people don't, are not talking about it. Uh, and also I think it makes people uncomfortable for all the reasons that I said, like people don't want to talk about it and we really should be talking about it. Um, I also was with a, a very close friend of mine, um, when he died and it was, I was not, I had no idea that it was going to be so, so special and so amazing. And I mean, it was terrifying and hard and also like Mm -hmm. exquisite. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that is a, a, I think a good way to characterize it. Um, Have you written about this topic in any of your, in any of your writings? You mentioned that you were writing, you write um, a regular column for one of our local papers. Um, Is this something you've written about? Oh, and it's so funny that you say that, but it didn't occur to me, actually. I really should. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I yeah, will. I mean, um, I, I think, I think it would be a beautiful piece. I would look, I would look forward to reading it. Um, what, what other types of stuff have you written about for our, our local, um, paper? Um, well, for the paper, I've, I'm limited by my audience and my word count, um, I mean, the, you know, the, the, I write for the Daily Hampshire Gazette and I have like a 900 word column. So that's pretty tight. Um, and I also, um, you know, really try to pay attention to my audience there or, you know, the audience of the mm-hmm. Gazette, um, which is, you know, Western mass and, you know, the, yeah. I'm sure you are familiar yeah. with the sort of, you know, yeah. the breakdown of, of the readers around. Um, it, it is actually very adorable though, that my, um, my readers tend to be, um, like older white, um, pretty, you know, good hearted people that want to do better. Um, I get a lot of Unitarian Universalist people that, that really, that like me, which is like, makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you guys are so sweet and adorable. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, right before the um, pandemic broke, I was supposed to go and speak at the Unitarian Universalist society in Amherst and I was so excited about it and then they were like ah everything is halted I'm so bummed um so for that column though my my goal for that column I would say I mean the editor-in-chief Brooke Hauser she's so fantastic um she was just sort of like you're wacky and I just want to see what happens when you write for us. <laughs> so she, that was it. Like she didn't give me any rules. She was like, you have an interesting brain. Do whatever mm-hmm. you want to do. And which was like really freaky. Um, Cause I was like, give me some fucking boundaries. <laughs> give me some rules. Um, but actually it's been fantastic. So like every month, you know, it's like I either pay attention to, you know, a particular, you know, news piece or, you know, a particular campaign or something that's like, you know, really, really relevant in that moment. Um, or if, you know, I feel like I can sort of widen the lens, really my goal is to, you know, challenge people to acknowledge whatever privileges that they might have and utilize those privileges to do good, I think is really the, the goal of my column um, at the end of the day. Um, and how I get there really varies. Um, but no, I have not written about um, death and dying and death with dignity, and I really, really should. 
Um, so lately it's been, um, I've been doing more interviews, um, and amplifying voices of activists in the area, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. It's such yeah. a great thing to have a reason to just sit down and talk to people like, like you two do. Yeah. It's really fun. It is fun. <laughs> it is. Um, do, you mentioned, you mentioned that the type of writing you do for the Daily Hampshire Gazette is has some tight boundaries around it. Do you do other writing for yourself or for another venue that isn't so, um, doesn't have um, such um, definitions around it? Do, yeah. you, do you write poetry, fiction, something else? Um, I write, I guess, sort of first person narratives about my experience as a mom and as a feminist I guess is really the best way to, to describe it um I, uh, David Sedaris is sort of my my hero and I want to be the, the the raunchy lady version of him who's also a mom of three so it doesn't quite fit but whatever I love <laughs> it <laughs> and I'm very inspired by David Sedaris um but I write I have a blog and I put a lot of my stuff on there um I should probably do a little plug. It's ChelseaCline.com. And we'll, <laughs> Isn't that we, what people, I, and we'll link to that I, in our show notes, oh, people who are thank listening you. to yeah, that. I'm, yep. I'm not a self-promotional gal, so it feels really awkward, but whatever. Um, and then I also write for Medium, which, you know, as you know, anyone can really write on there. But I sometimes put, you know, some, some of my bigger pieces that feel more polished up on there. Um, and I have like three um, books that are in various states. Um, one of them is like a novel, which is, um, fiction, um, which is, you know, I think well underway, um, give or take. And then I have a collection of short stories. Um, that's, well, actually my novel is called grief migration mm-hmm. and that is about, um, I guess it's actually a lot about loss and about sort of finding one's sort of, um, Finding oneself on the other side of loss through storytelling, I think, is is really the best way that I can summarize that book. Um, and it also has a lot to do with um, who's left behind, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly with um, uh, a lot of the trans murders that have been going on. So it's the story of a, a partner of a, of a of a trans individual who um, goes on to sort of put their life back together afterwards and telling the stories of their love um, and sort of feeling in that way. So that's grief migration. And then my short stories, um, are called women's work and they're short stories about like the, (laughs) the shit that women do to survive, um, and to feed their kids or to keep themselves safe or alive. Um, so they're, they, I, I actually am like a really funny, goofy person in real life. And then I write about these like kind of serious, (laughs) intense things and I'm like, but I'm funny, but I'm not actually, I don't don't think I'm actually that funny. Which I'm like, I'm like, it's a little bit of a, of a mind fuck for myself. I'm like, but I write funny things. I, I don't think I really write funny things. <laughs> I think I write like really serious, kind of hard, like rough things that are sometimes a little bit funny, maybe. Yeah, I th- and, um, I th- and I think you, you started out by <laughs> acknowledging people are really complex, right? Yeah. I think that's where we started a, a, a long time ago. A long time yeah. ago. So I, yeah. I, I think, I mean, yeah, we're complex. <laughs> we're not, we're not just one thing or another. I, th- I think... Sorry, and I know that you're not finished because you only told us about two out of the three. Oh yeah, sorry. But um, I think what draws me to the writing that you do in particular is it is funny, even when it's serious. Okay. It is funny, like it's captivating, like it's endearing. It's like so. 
I have to tell you that latest piece that you wrote for Medium that you um, just put out there, I like it, it. Like I sent it to a whole bunch of women friends, and they they were like, literally, thank you for sharing that. That just like made me feel so much better about life. Like that is, <laughs> but like this is the thing. Like, <laughs> and this is what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm totally a fangirl because like I just. Like, I read it, and I'm just like, it's so relatable. It's funny, but it's not, and it's serious at the same time. So I'm a huge admirer of yours, which is also why I wanted you to come on. But oh, I'm, like, <laughs> full-on tearing up right now. Like, that's the whole point of why I write is yeah. to, like, like, help other people not feel alone. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, thank you for saying that. Like, that just means so fucking much to me. Well, it's true too. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you have a favorite form of writing? Uh, sorry, tell us about your third piece. Sorry, <laughs> no, sorry. Oh. I'm just charging oh. ahead. <laughs> um, my third piece is the least baked of them all, but also feels like I have to do it. Um, I want to write a book that is like part deconstructing um, circumcision and why it exists in Jewish tradition and how we can get around it as, as um, parents who choose not to. And also the stories of um, individual families who decided not to, and, and sort of like a little bit of an activist toolkit of like how to approach people that might be on the fence when they're expecting a child and how to like, you know, be a gentle supportive person that can, you know, present, you know, alternatives to people and also alternative rituals um, for that. So I've, this one's been like percolating in my mind for a long time um, and also feels like the hardest because I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to have to really dig into like some really intense mm-hmm. stuff um, and also interview a bunch of people. But that part feels exciting. So yeah. that book is like in my mind and I'm like, I have to fucking do it. But mm-hmm. it's you whatever. Know, I have a lot yeah. of things I have to do. Yeah. Yep. I'd, um, I'd appreciate reading that as a as a Jewish mom who felt a lot of pressure in uh, my Judaism throughout life. And um, prior to us having our first child, not even pregnant, uh, being told that we needed to make sure that we had a bris for our yeah. son that was not yet conceived, yeah. um, I I can find a lot of... Um, Condition number one. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Lots of arguments and, and yeah, things of yeah. that I would nature. be very interested in yeah. reading all of that. And I will tell you, it's, sorry, I know I'm like completely veering this conversation off topic, but the day that we did it, you can ask Sati, like I was a fucking wreck, yeah. like a, a, a mental wreck, like I couldn't deal with life that yeah. day. So, all right, we it's, can just move on. It's intense. Then there's I mean, a lot of pressure is. and a lot of feelings and it's mm-hmm. not, it's not simple. That's for sure. No. <laughs> A hundred percent not. So I would appreciate reading that book whenever you, yeah. read, you write it. <laughs> How do you, um, so is, is there, what's your writing process like? Do you, do you have, do you have to write alone? Do you get up early in the morning? Do you wait till late at night? Do you have to go by the lilac bush in a, in a tent? Like what do you, what's your process? <laughs> Well, I will speak to my process now because everything is so different um, and yeah. we're in this for a while. And so I'm, you know, whatever. I There's my old process and now there's my process now. Yep. Um, but I think that the things that are the same between before and after coronavirus um, are that, you know, something will strike me like I'm like I'll have a little kind of a kernel of a something of a thought and I will. 
um, just sort of like noodle it to death in my mind. And so much of my writing happens um, before I'm actually sitting down. Um, and sometimes things feel really, really urgent. And I will just do like a voice memo in notes in my phone. And I will just like blah, 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 blah. And like get some of the bones down mm-hmm. just so I don't lose, you know, particular phrases or particular points that I want to make. And then I can kind of go from there. Like the blank page is terrifying. So if I have just a couple of keywords or a couple of things to hang my hat on, then, then that feels a lot more comforting to me. Um, and I used to have alone time. <laughs> I do not have any alone time anymore ever. Um, so I used to be like, oh, like I have my man and then I would sit down and like have like a really concentrated, you know, time. And now I'm like constantly like sort of hiding or making some kind of like negotiations with, you know, with my parenting, I guess. It's like, all right, if they have a movie on, then I can go and do this thing. Or, you know, if they're laying down and doing a thing next to me, then I can kind of bang out a little bit. So there's a lot of like stolen, you know, little moments. Um, But a lot of it is really just like internal and, you know, and brain churning. Um, And I like wake up at three in the morning a lot and really like chew on ideas um, and I swear if I actually had the discipline to get up and write then at three in the morning, then my writing would be a lot better. Cause I have really cool ideas at three in the morning, but I don't <laughs> actually write them down. <laughs> it's kind of terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of it is, a lot of it is, you know, a mental, a mental hamster wheel situation. And then I can kind of like spit something out onto the yeah. page, but it takes a lot to actually get there. Um, I know you mentioned before that the editor you work with um, at the newspaper you like and is good. So I'm not talking about that person. But have you ever worked (laughs) with editors you don't like? Or have Um, you had a difficult time with? You know, actually, my, my mom is an editor. And it's funny because she she's every time I put something out without asking her, she's like, Oh, misspelled somersault. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, that's actually how she met her husband. This is like, I'll tell you the story very briefly. She loves murder mysteries and she was gifted like a shopping bag full of his books. And she just like inhaled all of his books all at once, but she's an amazing editor and like a speed reader. And so she just started fucking emailing him like, Hey, book five, page 57, you used the wrong there or whatever it was. And so he ended up firing his editor and hiring her and falling in love with her. And now she does all of his editing, oh my God. all of his marketing, all of his oh book God. tours. And, and they're like peas in a pod. And so, and he's, he writes murder mysteries. And so she'll ask him, you know, like, you know, like they'll be out in the world and he'll ask her like, Oh, do you think we could hide a body like in behind that? Like, what do you think? Should we put that in the book? Like they're always <laughs> talking about like the most bizarre macabre things that happen in his book. It's amazing. Like, it's so crazy to yeah. see somebody like find their person. It's really wacky. So but, she's a really good editor and she's someone that I relied on before. Um, and now I like try to have a little bit of space cause I'm like, it's my thing mom, but, but <laughs> she's also a great editor. So like yeah. I do sometimes rely on her, but that's complicated obviously. But I, I haven't really had that many editors in my yeah. life cause I'm like, I'm not like a, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if I'm a real writer. Maybe I'm a real writer. You're, real you're, writer. Pub, you're, pu- <laughs> you're, you're, you're published and you've touched people with your writing. You're a real writer. Um, mm, I, sweet. I wrote, um, I wrote professionally for about 11 years doing medical writing and I had wow. primarily one editor and it's so strange. Like eventually we developed this symbiotic 
like kind of mind meld together. Like I would hand, you know, I'd hand in a draft and she'd be like, okay, I know I've got to adjust all of the level two headings because you never get those right. Or I know, <laughs> I know to search for there because you can't spell that. And like, it was just, it was just weird having yeah, somebody, with her, right? yeah, it was weird having somebody get to understand your mind that way, mm-hmm. like in how it works. It was just, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It was weird. So, all right. I don't want this question to sound creepy, so it's going to sound creepy because I'm saying I don't want it to, but um you have amazing funny warning. you have amazing hair. And I'm not going to attempt to describe it. So, I, if you can for our listeners, could you describe your hair for them? Oh, I'm describing yes, it. Yes, please. Okay. Uh there's a lot of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it is it is down to my butt, um, and it is like pure white. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, so I'll say, um, Stomping Jen knows this. Um, I really like platinum and silver hair, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'm curious, and we don't see a lot of it, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> especially on on women. Um, like there's something about it, maybe the scarcity that I find so compelling, uh-huh. right? Um, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts on why we try to hide um, that color hair. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Could you could you could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think actually this is interesting. I think it really relates to what we were talking about earlier with like not talking about death. And not confronting aging and wanting to, you know, stay, I mean, for women, we're supposed to be, you know, sexy and perfect forever, right? And we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to age. Um, and silver hair is, is definitely a sign of aging. Um, <clears throat> so I think it makes people kind of uncomfortable and I think it feels not sexy for some people. Um, and I think that, you know, is sort of like the... <sighs> Uh, that's considered to be a failure, I think, for women to not be sexy anymore. So I think people are scared of letting their hair go white. Um, So we've been fed a lot of bullshit, right? About like what we're supposed to do and all the products that we're supposed to buy Mm -hmm. in order to follow those fucking rules. (laughs) Um, So that's, that's my, my, my thought in a nutshell. What do you two think? Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I, as an experiment, how long has it been? I stopped shaving uh, two years ago. Two years ago. Like two-ish years ago. Because I like came to this realization that, one, I hate shaving. And two, I don't know what it's like to not shave. So I said, Mm. okay, I'm going to stop shaving. And it took took longer than I would have wanted to uh, admit to feel comfortable with it. You know, because Mm. of societal pressure to like shave it and get rid of it and you know, it's, it, yeah. Yeah. You know. Right. Right. It, and that's saying something in Western mass too. Oh, I like, know. Right. If we're feeling uncomfortable in Western <laughs> mass then like there's no hope for the rest of the country, you know? <laughs> right. Now I have to deal with like my beard and my mustache, but those still. <laughs> those are my only moments of Xan or tweezing, tweezing my chin hair. Yeah. Okay. You get yeah. it. Yeah. That's oh, right. Yes, I do. Me, me too. <laughs> my favorite hobby. <laughs> I had to find like a good like 
spot in the suns. You could see them all like hell yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you yes. um do you feel like stomping gen people still like look at you? Um, because you know, know your unshaven pits. You know, if they do, I don't actually even realize it anymore. So yeah. that's how comfortable I've now become with it, mm-hmm. which makes me feel better that it took so long. I mean, it makes me feel better that I don't have to think about it. I do sometimes on my legs be like, oh, they're, you know, they're hairy or whatever, hmm. which, you know, like, but you can't even see it, which is like the weird part because my, I'm barely fair anyway. <laughs> so people, and you like literally asked me the other day, like, did you shave your legs? And I was like, no, they're still, they're still hairy. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It, it- <laughs> It's interesting as a man who is, except for my, like my face, you know, and my yeah, pu- in hairless. my pubic my pubic region, I am like <laughs> relatively hairless. I'm like a naked mole rat, and <laughs> I like all of my life, people yeah. have asked me if I shave like my legs, if I shave my arms, if I really? shave my chest. Yes, that's something I've been confronted with yeah. like all my life. Yeah, not so much now because I don't interact with many people like without a shirt on without a shirt on like <laughs> times are different now um well you were a lifeguard let's just like I set was a lifeguard. Oh, oh, oh. But, but but you should have just left that hanging it would have been so scandalous but i think my i think my point is it's interesting that i've grappled with this expectation a lot of my life that i should be hairier like as a man, like I just can't be who I am and right. have the hair I have. Like, right. no, you're not hairy enough yeah. and masculine right. enough. So many rules. Right. right. All of these rules. Right. Um, I, th- I think what's unique, though, about Chelsea's hair, not yeah. so much that it's white or silver or whatever color uh, yeah. it is. It's, it's that it's so long, <laughs> you know, because for women, you don't see a lot of long hair, like really long hair on women past a certain age, you know, because I think... Well, what I'm, is that? Why? Well, I can say, so for me, I cut my hair after college. Again, Sawtooth's uh, uh, desires, I cut all my hair off really short. And, and I'm glad you did, uh, because you should not do the things... Just be, you know what right. I mean? Like, well, I mean, you should do yes, you. of course, yes. of course. But I did it anyway. Um, and you still love me and you still married me. And, um, but for me, it was like, I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Like, you know, I have so much hair. It's not long like yours, but there's so much of it, you know, that I just didn't want to deal with it. And I was putting it in ponytails all the time and I'm like, it's not healthy. It's not good for my hair. So cutting it, was healthier for my hair and it's like lower maintenance right except for the fact that you have to cut it more often so i think that's why women cut their hair when they get older most of the time so seeing somebody with long long hair is is fairly unusual past a certain age i mean although like you know for my little one for my 10 year old i'm just like can you please brush your hair you have to take care of it. If you want it long, you have to take care of it, you know? Right. How do you right. care? Is, How do you care for really long hair? It is a pain in the ass. Like, there is something to be. Yeah, you know, it is true. And I actually joke with my husband that, like, I'm like, I wonder if people think you have, like, a really intense hair fetish. Like, I wonder if they think that I have long hair because of you. Because he's always like, oh, my God. Like, my, my hair is, like... Um, we, we, I no joke. We had a moment today where we found one of my hairs and we couldn't tell if it was, um, fishing line or my hair. I like, seriously, <laughs> like it is like that 
kind of like white and strong and thick. And my daughter and I were both pulling on it. We were like, is it fishing line? Like, I'm really not even kidding. We were in the lake today. Um, and so poor Greg is like pulling them out of all sorts of places all the time. And like, yeah, it's a, it's a lot, you know, and it is not, it is not his preference. It is my preference. It is definitely my choice. Um, but we do laugh about it. Like we were wondering people are like, why does he force her to have that crazy long neck? You know, people have all kinds of fetish, whatever. It's not, it's whatever. It's me. I like having my long hair. I don't even exactly know why. Um, but yes, it is annoying and yes, it gets in the way and I have it up almost all of the time in a variety of braids or buns or whatever. Um, my husband is a woodworker and he makes me actually really beautiful hair sticks, um, all the time. Like I have a whole variety of hair sticks just to put my hair up. Um, but I, it's very minimal care. Um, I use, um, I do use a purple shampoo. Um, I think Lanza is the kind that I use and that really like enhances the white. So for people who are considering going white, I always recommend that like once they kind of get past the grow out phase, it's like mm-hmm. use a purple shampoo because it like really makes the color really mm-hmm. like sparkly and special. Um, and I never, ever brush it and I never, ever comb it. Um, and I huh. use the Trader Joe's Shea Butter Hair Mask as my conditioner. It's like $3 or something. Um, and I use like a good palm full of that and just like comb my fingers through my hair to get rid of tangles and let it sit for three minutes and then rinse it out. And then I use a massive handful of, um, like any kind of hand cream, like no joke, like just like, Mm -hmm. like whatever, like crappy hand cream or whatever in my hair. And that's what I do afterwards. And then just like braid it and let it dry that way. That's it. I don't blow dry. I don't do anything. If I cut it, I do it like by myself. Like I just use like, I just do tiny little trims by myself and I don't go to any salon or whatever. Um, I was a brunette. Like that is a really funny thing about me. Like I used to have hair, your color, Jen, um, like super dark brown. Um, but I am an Irish Jew. So (laughs) 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 what? And I also had a baby when I was, you know, I got pregnant at 18. So I think the shock (laughs) of all of that, I think, I don't know what, um, but I started going white when I was 14 and, uh, and I was a little punker. So I had a totally shaved head and I could see the little like silver little bits coming in on my little shaved head and I Mm. tweezed them out and they, you know, as, as white hair does, they sent out search parties. They're like, one of our own is missing. And so it's nuts. Send in seven more. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I battled it for a while and dyed it. And then I was like, this stuff stinks and it's expensive and I hate it. And like, what am I doing? And I decided to stop dying and see what happened. So not to say that it's for everybody, for sure. Um, it, it is the way that I'm comfortable being, but I also know that I'm, you know, whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a choice that can make some people uncomfortable. So that's interesting, mm. but you don't <laughs> brush it. I'm actually intrigued yeah, I was by so the bad. fact that you don't yeah, brush it. That's a Never me. ever. I don't own a brush. That's wow. crazy. Yeah. It would puff up like a big freaky tumbleweed. I think if I did, huh. uh, I don't know. I've never brushed my hair though. See, wow. I don't brush my hair, but that's because I have the curls. Yeah. And when I do, <laughs> it's 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 funny. I do it like very rarely, just like as like a funny thing to and do. And it does frizz out like <laughs> it's, crazy. It's so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, it's funny, and no one's ever like really asked me like what my what my thing is. It's like, oh, this is my like that's how I take it. It's so funny. Like it's <laughs> stuff you don't really think about, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. You mentioned um, earlier you were swimming um, in a lake. So I'm assuming you were going to do that. She said she was on a lake. She oh, didn't say lake. she was swimming you're, in you're the right, lake. Right. I was, you're right. I was swimming in a lake. You're right. Yep. <laughs> no, she was swimming in a lake. She said she was in the lake. All right. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. We've established you were swimming in a lake. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Proceed. Which is my favorite thing to do, period. So swimming. That I was going to ask you what you like to do for fun. Oh God. If I can be in fresh water, I am so happy. I, I mean, like it's just like heavenly, perfect, good. Um, I much prefer lakes over the ocean, uh, which I know is a, is a controversial statement, but I am the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. Stomping Jen that. hates lakes. I do. Oh, what? Why? Uh, yeah. She's afraid of stepping on fish. No, no, that's why I'm, that's my fear of the ocean. Oh. But I still lo- prefer an ocean over a lake. Huh. Why don't you like lakes? Uh, I can't remember. Because they're like gross. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. There's like, they're smelly and there's like yuck at the bottom. and <laughs> It's just part of the circle of life. It's all right. I don't mind, like, you know, going out on the paddle boards. That's been a fun thing that we've been doing this summer. Yeah, that has been fun. We spent a lot of time on the water this summer, which has been nice. Mm. So I, and I I like lakes. I'm a fan of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wait, you have, you guys have set boards? Yep. Yep, we do. Um, Anything else, anything else you like to do for fun? Yeah, I have, I have a set board. I got it at Costco. It was cheap and it is so fun and I love it. And uh, yeah kayaking too for sure um i really like to walk what mm-hmm. is the, the latin phrase like sol- solvitare ambulare like it is solved by walking i mm-hmm. think that is really applicable to my life and actually a lot of my writing too i like walk and think and walk and think and like unravel stuff as i walk mm-hmm. um and listen to podcasts while i walk mm-hmm. um so that's been like a, a you know a major sanity saver i think during this time and, and even before i did lots and lots of walking i hike with my kids almost every day unless it's too hot and take them out and just run them like dogs um, mm-hmm. <laughs> out in the woods and, you know, look at, look at frogs and whatever. So that's nice. pretty joyful I'd say, but yeah, being outside and moving and being mm-hmm. in fresh water, that's like all I need. Mm-hmm. Nice. Where do the good lakes <laughs> out your way? Um, I'm a pretty diehard fan of the Goshen ocean at the DAR. Oh, um, okay. oh yeah. It's, yeah. It's yep. pretty, pretty sweet spot. Um, as far for swimming, yeah, I think that's my favorite. <clears throat> if I'm on the Cape, the kettle ponds are like where it's at, in my opinion. I don't know if you all go to the Cape at all, but no, it's but been, really any fresh water. I used to go a lot. My brother lived in um, Falmouth uh, for a couple mm. of years. I used to go down there um, like decades ago, but it's been a long time. Mm. Sorry, when you just said that, I think because I'm a Jersey girl, Chelsea. <laughs> I think that's right why on. I prefer those. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that I was exposed. I think the lakes that were by my house were like really nasty. Yeah. And that makes yeah. perfect sense. Probably yeah, yeah, yeah. New Jersey, they were probably filled with bodies. That's why they were um, <laughs> in the Pine Barrens. The lakes that's, were, why, that's why they were gross. It smelled Second bad. Second reference to Pine Barrens in 24 hours. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, my right. mom used to row in the Potomac in DC and she encountered a body more than once for oh my sure. So yeah. God. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeepers creepers. Um all right, so um this brings me to my last question, and it's one I've been asking everybody. Um 
in recent weeks. Um, have you ever seen anything you can't explain? Whoa, you could take know, this. Right? You could take this any way you want. Any direction. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Can you tell us about it? Sure. I mean, I guess really constantly. I mean, when I was actually, when I was pre-med and taking human anatomy classes and we would be, you know, dissecting parts and examining bodily functions and, you know, whatever, whatever. And I remember like working with this one professor for a long time and, you know, really pushing like, you know, why does the endocrine gland do this? Or why does the blah, 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 like, you know, having like really trying to figure out why, why, why in the human body. And there would be a certain point or a certain wall that she would hit and she would say, because it's fucking magic. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why the body does it. It just does this. And like, I think if we look all around us, like, my God, like, why are there crickets in the trees tripping right now? Like, we can't really explain it. Like, it's just cool. Yeah. Like, trees are cool. Swimming in a lake feels like, you know, majestic and glorious. Why? I don't know. But I think yeah. like, I can't explain anything. And that's what sort of keeps the little spring in my step is like, yeah. it's all this big old weird mystery. And it's like, bizarre and cool i love that answer thank you (laughs) what about you two or have you you probably answered it in other episodes you probably don't think think anyone's ever asked yeah nobody's ever asked no one's ever turned that around on me stomping jen go ahead what what have you seen you can't explain oh god i don't i no idea my love for you oh my god i have to think about this (laughs) i haven't even thought about it Mm. Why don't you go? Well, I'm pretty sure I've seen ghosts. Um, when I was younger, and I think my mind was more open, I've had a, I had a couple of experiences that I am relatively certain were not dreams. There's two. Um, one was when I was about five. Uh, our two Siamese cats had just died. Um, they died a couple weeks apart and after the last one died I remember coming down the steps and walking past a chair like this is playing out like a movie in my mind and I remember seeing the cat sitting on the chair and in my like five-year-old mind I was very confused and I stopped and I looked at the cat and it opened its mouth to meow but no sound came out and like I reached for the cat and then it just disappeared kind of like slowly disappeared. And you were awake? I think I was awake. Another experience I had was around the <laughs> He's same fully age. fully prepared for this question. <laughs> yeah. Well, these are two things that I, 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 I cannot explain. Okay. <clears throat> I could come up with more, but it's a similar thing. I, about that same age, I went outside, um, and I remember by the garden, I saw an old lady standing there by my father's tomatoes. And I remember seeing her and she kind of turned to look at me and like, I can see her as clear as, you know, anything. And she just kind of faded away again. Mm. So I think those are ghosts. I remember both of these incidents as clear, like, Mm. but in my mind as a kid, I just accepted that they were ghosts I was like, oh, okay, that was weird. 
Um, they didn't seem scary to me. Yeah. But I can like those those two memories are emblazoned in me, and they they feel mm. different to me than dreams because I, I remember scary dreams I had. Anyways. But had you seen have you seen anything similar since then? No, I don't think I have. Um, now I've had very strange, what I would call psychic like experiences. I'll tell this story real quick. Um, so when I was I was in the army for a couple of years, and I remember. Um, so to make a long story short, I was taking a class somewhere <clears throat> way across. Um, way across a base Mm -hmm. that I was at. Um, And I remember I was taking a nap um, because I didn't want to go all the way back to the other side of the base where my, um, where my roommate was. I remember, so I took a nap and I remember I, I woke up from this dream where I was lying under my bed and I like a snake came down through the mattress and like crawled into my throat and I couldn't breathe. Wow. Right. And so I, I sat up from the dream and this like happened in my other room. It was all the way across the base. Right. It's like, there's something wrong. Like something is seriously wrong. So I actually went back to the other side of the base to the barracks and I found my roommate in the bed, like next to where mine was. It was like across the room, but he had um, taken a bunch of pills and he was like in the process of an overdose. Wow. And ended up, ended up saving his life. Mm-hmm. Oh my um, God. <clears throat> but it was like this weird thing where I like, I had this horrible dream that woke me up and this like feeling that I had to get back to the, to the other room. That's just, remarkable. Like, it, and it was just the weirdest weirdest thing mm-hmm. like it was just this compulsion like i had to go because yeah. there was something mm. wrong yeah no I, wonder you asked that question of other people well, there's a lot that's that's unclear that's yeah not explainable yeah he's also on the search for bigfoot and aliens so yeah i am <laughs> i may not be so deeply spiritual <laughs> yeah my brother just my my brother just moved to Oregon, so yeah, I, I hope like, to get out, I hope to get out there and go. Big it's like hunting. his dream to go like hunting for a couple of months with a camera <laughs> to go searching for a Sasquatch. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe I'm just too pragmatic. I don't know that I've ever seen. Well, anything. you don't have to have an answer. It's All okay. Right. Sorry, I feel I feel obligated now that Chelsea's asked us. <laughs> I have to think about. it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> I'm going with my love. Oh. You're so ridiculous. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. Oh my goodness gracious. Oh, Always well, go with love. Always yeah. go with love. All right, Stomping Jen, Chelsea. We've we've done just about two hours. Can you believe it? Oh my god. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. That's what everybody says. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. I told you we could talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. You what guys you have think? great questions. Oh, thank you. Um They're all they're all sad. They're not all me. You asked questions. Oh, okay, okay. No, I think no, you just... guys really you really surprised me, and we went in places I I was not expecting at all, and Th- I I definitely learned a lot tonight. And thank you for going there. Yeah, with us, you know, I really appreciate it. I think um, 
people, I think people are going to find this conversation um, really enlightening and interesting. And yeah. um, you're a really interesting person. And thank you for talking to us. I cannot, Likewise, you I cannot too. thank this you been, enough. This has been totally enjoyable. You two are great. I love it. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. So are we ending stomping, Jen? I think, I think we it? should let Chelsea we'll let Chelsea return go. to her life. Yes. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna hit the I'm gonna hit the outro music. I'm just gonna say to everybody listening to this once again, mm-hmm. um, thank you for listening. Thank you. Please subscribe, download, tell a friend, mm-hmm. leave us a review yep. on uh, Apple um, Podcasts, whatever that is. <laughs> whatever. Yep. And whatever medium and yeah. platform that you're listening on, and we love you. We love That's you. That's it, right? Just wear a mask. Wear a mask. <laughs> wear so a mask. Yeah. For Please. crying out loud. Just wear a mask. All right. And uh, Stomping Jen, what do we say to people? Bye now. All right. Chelsea, any final words? Mm, thank you so much. This was lovely. All right. Thank you again. And to all of you folks, bye now. Bye now.